Welcome to the King's Word Bible Study. I'm your host, Brother Vinny Fitzgerald, and today we're going to delve into the Bible to bring you insight from God's Word that will help you to grow and to develop into spiritual maturity. These lessons are designed to help guide you and strengthen you in your relationship with the Lord. Whether you've never opened a Bible or have read it cover to cover, this podcast will inform and uplift you. Our purpose is not only for you to know and to understand the King's Word, but for you to live it out in your day-to-day life. Philippians 4 and 9 tells us, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Today, our topic is going to be greatness. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, beginning in the first verse, it says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not eat after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be ye not called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Verse 11 told us, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. This is a verse that we hear quoted often, but it's important that we really understand what it means and what it looks like in real life. This is a spiritual principle that never changes. It's as applicable now as it was when it was written. And when we take it to heart and act on it, we will find that it works the way that it says that it works. Nowadays, everyone wants to be great. This isn't a strange or a wrong desire. This is good. We were designed and formed by a great God and were made in His image. So it's no wonder that we aspire to greatness. One of the major problems in the church today is that people go about attaining greatness in different ways. And they also have different definitions of it. Far too many people make it into something that it's not and into something that it was never meant to be. Some Christians have wrongly adopted the world's definition of greatness as their own, which has never led to anything good. It only leads to disappointment. And if the person is a public figure in the ministry, it can lead those who they are leading to feel disillusioned when they see that their supposed greatness was only measured by the world's standards. The problem today is that we've gotten greatness all wrong. We've misunderstood it. As we mentioned last week, the kingdom of God is an inverted kingdom. It's the opposite of how we would think a kingdom should work in the natural. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first, is one of the foundational principles of his kingdom. And so is the fact that faithful service leads to greatness, always. To most people, this seems backwards, and it's not how they want to serve. They want greatness immediately, especially in this generation, accustomed to things happening quickly. They don't want to wait. 
They want to have greatness before they do the service. Or they don't want to serve at all because they view it as menial and beneath them. But it doesn't work this way. These people do like the old saying says, and they want the cart before the horse. They want greatness, but they don't want to do what's necessary to achieve greatness. Greatness is not a gift. It's not something that's given. It's something that's earned and acquired by hard work and faithfulness over time. We find this shown throughout scripture, and it's important that we see it in motion, in the pattern that God has established, because we want greatness too. It's natural, and it's part of our human nature, and it's available to us, but we first need to serve. There are Christians who think that greatness is defined by wealth or size of their church or number of converts and other similar measurements. And they also think that fame and being well-known by others is a determining factor of greatness. But this couldn't be further from the truth. The Pharisees adopted this mentality. Verse 5 told us, But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. They want to be seen. They want to be recognized by the public. They want the fame, which indicates that what they really want is the glory that comes with the fame. This is why their service was unprofitable and meaningless. They didn't care about serving and serving well. They didn't care about being faithful. They just cared about the praise of the people. And this is what ruined their service. Paul was a man who understood real service and wasn't afraid to serve for the right reasons. His intentions were right. And he cared more about doing well and being faithful than being known and being recognized. Galatians chapter 1 verses 21 to 23 say, Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face under the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. People in Judea had heard of Paul, his ministry, his conversion, and knew from others how the Lord had drastically changed his life. But they didn't recognize him by face, or as other versions of the Bible say, by sight. When we think of Paul, having the luxury of being able to see the entirety of his ministry at once, it seems hard to fathom the thought of him being unknown. We always tend to think of him as being famous and well-known amongst the Christians of that time, and even amongst his enemies. But yet, in the early days of his ministry, he was unknown, and it was for a considerable amount of time, too. The first verse of chapter 2 of Galatians says, Then fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. This period of fourteen years is dating from the time that he got saved on the road to Damascus. If we then remove the three years that he spent in Arabia, we see that he spent about eleven years ministering while being unknown. The places where he was ministering also give us insight into this period of his ministry and service. Galatians 1 and 21 told us, Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Acts chapter 9, which is a parallel passage referring to the same period of time, says in verse 30, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. We find in these two different verses a few different places mentioned and understanding why God chose to send him to these places first, instead of any other places, is important. At first, it would seem like each of these verses are referring to different places, but they're actually the same place. Tarsus is a city within Cilicia, 
And not only was this the city he was being sent to first, this was also where he was from. We know this to be true because Acts 21 and 39 tells us, But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. In ancient times, there were legends that the city of Tarsus was founded by the Greek gods, Perseus and Hercules, which in the minds of the Grecians gave it a special level of prestige. The actual story is that the city was founded after the Trojan War and reached its highest point of development while being controlled by Greece and then subsequently by Rome. It's noted by a number of ancient writers that it was an extremely expensive city to live in, even with the requirement that in order to become a citizen, a person had to pay 500 drachmae, which was equivalent to a year and a half's wages. It was known as an intellectual, commercial, and philosophical center and was called the greatest city in Cilicia. It was said that Tarsus even surpassed Athens and Alexandria as centers of culture and learning, which gained it the name of University City, one of three in the Roman Empire. It's also important to note that the population of the city was 500,000 people, which is very significant because the city of Rome only reached about 1 million people at its peak. Alexandria, Carthage, Ephesus, and Antioch all reached about 200,000 at their peak. Caesarea was another prominent place, being the administrative city of Judea, becoming the capital of the province in 6 AD. It was in these places that Paul was serving, but he was still unknown. It's easy to understand how he could be lost in the sea of half a million people, but he wasn't serving to be recognized or to be seen. He was serving to glorify God. It's interesting to note that when the Lord saved Paul, he had previously been a man of Tarsus who became a Pharisee who were known for doing their service, wanting to be seen and noticed. But then after Christ came into his life, the Lord sent him back to where he came from and left him there to serve for 11 years, unknown and unrecognized. It was part of God's restoration of his life, giving him a new start and a chance to serve for the right reasons. Paul wasn't looking for greatness. He was looking to serve. His heart was in the right place. His mind was stayed on the Lord. And because he was faithful in his service, it led to greatness, like it always will. Like most good things in life, when he wasn't looking for it, it came. He went on to write two-thirds of the New Testament and became one of the greatest known Christians of all history. This greatness didn't come easily. It didn't come overnight. It came after years and years of unknown service and then years and years of persecution and hardship. But he remained faithful through it all, and he never gave up. It was what Paul did during this time of being unknown that made the difference and laid the foundation for his success. A lot of Christians are serving the Lord right now, all across the world, but are unknown. A lot of Christians allow this to bother them, because they think that if they're unknown, then they're somehow not great. But being known doesn't equal being great. It actually has no relation at all when it comes to spiritual things. Over time, this causes a lot of people to give up serving, even when their service is exactly what God is calling them to do in that moment. This false mindset has destroyed a lot of promising ministries and has demoralized a lot of promising Christians. The devil will use this mindset against us. If we feel unknown, whether it's true or not, he'll try to tell us that we haven't accomplished enough, 
We haven't been successful enough. We're not bearing any fruit. And all sorts of other lies that we have to carefully watch out for. The devil isn't the only one to blame for this mindset. A lot of times the church spreads this mindset too. We even use it and affirm it in our own terminology. We always use and hear the term megachurch nowadays. This sounds like a nice, harmless term, but it's not. It's actually far more nuanced than it seems. In Matthew 23 and 11, the word used for great in the Greek is megas, which when transliterated into English is our word mega. So when we use the term megachurch, we're in effect saying that that's a great church. In some cases, it may really be a great church, but in a lot of cases, they're not. And by calling them great churches, we're feeding the ideology that the size of the church, the ability to just fill seats, is what makes a church great. This isn't how God views it at all. It's not about how many seats you can fill. It's about how many people are living changed lives, bearing fruit of their own. That's the only metric that truly matters, and it's the only metric that will continue to be measurable throughout all of eternity. This has led to a lot of Christians only going to and supporting megachurches because of their status, not because of what's being preached, not because of the anointing being present, not because they're being spiritually fed there, but because it's filled with people and it's popular at that moment. This is dangerous, and it does a lot of damage, especially to new Christians who aren't aware of what to watch out for. But God has shown us in His Word what constitutes greatness and what is the evidence of faithful service. There are countless small, tiny churches all across the world with just a handful of people that in God's eyes are megachurches, with preachers who have faithfully taught the Word of God, where the anointing is present and where the people are spiritually fed with fresh meat from the Word of God. These are the things that make a church great. We next need to ask ourselves, what exactly is the evidence of faithful service? Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning in the 15th verse, it says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Verse 16 told us that ye shall know them by their fruits. Bearing spiritual fruit is indicative of greatness because it's indicative of service that was good and profitable, service that produced something. John 15 and 8 says, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. The fruit shows not only that we were disciplined learners, but also that we were disciplined in serving, and our fruit glorifies God, which is not only the ultimate purpose of all of our service to Him, but is more importantly, the ultimate purpose of our lives. We were designed to glorify Him. Matthew 5 and 16 says, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 6 and 20 tells us, For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We find this in Paul's ministry. He produced fruit and glorified God, even while being unknown. 
In verse 24 of Galatians 1, Paul said, And they glorified God in me. The word glorified here in the Greek means to render or esteem glorious, to honor. The concordance says that it means to ascribe weight by recognizing real substance and value. Glorifying God means valuing him for who he really is. Giving and ascribing glory to God personally acknowledges God in his true character and essence. This is why we serve. Our service, no matter what it is, no matter how it's done, no matter who we're doing it with, should point to God, point to his character, point to the true value that we can only find in him. Paul did this, which is why the Christians in Judea glorified God. They saw that Paul wasn't serving himself. He wasn't pointing to himself. He was serving his God, and he was pointing towards his God. The concordance says for the word in, that it implies instrumentality. This is exactly what proper service to God looks like. No matter the outward form of the service, it's how God uses us as a vessel and an instrument to bring glory to himself through us. It's when we allow ourselves to be an instrument in his hands so that he will be given glory through us that we've achieved greatness in his eyes. We also find this in verse 31 of Acts chapter 9, talking about the same period of preaching in Judea and Tarsus. It says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, were multiplied. This was the fruit and the evidence of his unknown service, and it should be the result of our service too. We may not be called to preach or teach, but we're all called to pray for and encourage each other in the Lord. We're called to be there for our fellow Christians when they need us, and to help in the house of the Lord. All these things are service. The people around us should enjoy the rest of the Lord, being free to rest in Him. They should be encouraged by us, and we should help to build up their faith. We should be helping them and teaching them what we know, so that they can walk in the fear of the Lord, faithfully serving Him and glorifying Him themselves. And they, after experiencing firsthand the love of God through us loving them, should be able to realize and feel the comfort of the Holy Spirit within their own life. A lot of times, God will purposefully have us serve in an unknown way as we're beginning to walk in our calling, to see how we handle it and how we conduct ourselves. What will we do with that service? Will we allow the fact of being unknown to influence our service and the fruit that we produce? Would we preach to one person? the same way that we would to a thousand or a hundred thousand or a million? We should, because it's not about quantity, it's about quality. We serve the same God who offers to save the one sheep and leave the 99 behind, and we should be willing to find and seek after just one person too, even if it's the only one. God watches how we serve during this time, because he's seeing if he can trust us. Trust is built up over time. It's based on experience. And if he sees that we can be trusted with a little in our service, he will then trust us with a lot, whether that be in terms of people to teach, people to help, or in wealth, or in any other measurement. Luke 16 and 10 tells us, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. This is how the Lord transitions us towards greatness. A state of greatness in the eyes of the Lord doesn't mean the absence of service. When the Lord decides to make us great, we don't get a special exemption from serving. It doesn't mean that our call to serve ends. In most cases, it actually means that we're called to serve even more. 
But this isn't a burden. It's not something that holds us back. It's something that elevates us. It frees us. And it shows us that the Lord has found us faithful enough to trust us with more. If we're serving to the best of our ability and bringing glory to the Lord, we're great in His eyes. And His eyes are the only ones that matter. It may not come with applause. It may not come with validation. But it comes with the smile of God, which makes any sacrifice, any persecution, and any feeling of inadequacy that we may have experienced along the way more than worth it. If we stay faithful, God will not only lead us into greatness, but he'll also affirm it when he tells us, as he did in Matthew 25 and 21, Well done, now good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are a great God. We thank you that you have made us in your image and that you have put a desire deep within us to be great. We thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to hold us by the hand and to lead us and to guide us into the greatness that you have prepared and set apart for us. We thank you that it's not a greatness the way the world defines it, by their faulty standards, but that it's a greatness that you approve of, a greatness that is pleasing and honoring to you and to your purposes. And Lord, we thank you that when those around us see the greatness that you have brought about in our life, that it will draw them to you, that they'll see that you are a great God, and that they'll see that greatness can only truly be found in you. Lord, we ask that you give us a heart to serve, even when it's unknown, even when it's without validation or applause, even when it can't be seen by men. And we ask for the wisdom and the courage and the boldness to give words of advice, words of comfort, words of edification to those around us so that they could be built up, so that they can deepen their relationship with the Lord, and so that their faith can grow ever more vibrant as they grow with you. And Lord, we thank you that this will bring about glory and honor and praise to your name. Lord, we worship you, and we thank you for all that you have done in our life, all that you're doing right now, and all the amazing, great things that you have set apart for us. And we give you all the honor and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want to be great and have Jesus as a part of your life today, all you need to do is to invite Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. You then need to repent of your sins and ask for his forgiveness. Then you trust that you've been forgiven and you ask for his free gift of eternal life. Now, if you've prayed this from a sincere heart and you truly meant it, then you are now a part of the family of God. Welcome to God's family. We want to thank everybody for listening today. We appreciate you taking out your time to spend with us. If you'd like to give us feedback and tell us how much you appreciate this show, you can contact us at kingswordbiblestudy at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about this program and this ministry, you can visit kingswordbible.com. We appreciate also if you write a review from wherever you're listening to this podcast from. And if you follow and subscribe, so that more people can hear the King's word for themselves. God bless you. We want you to know that we love you all. And we will see you next week as we continue to study the King's word.